Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, First Lady Melania Trump's trip to Africa. She went to Ghana, Malawi, Kenya, and Egypt. Did it matter? Then we'll discuss the Nigerian presidential primaries, why you should pay attention. Plus, we tackle the issue of musicians and politics. We have an in-depth interview with Robert Chagulani, also known as Afrobeat superstar Bobby Wine. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. On October 1st, will mark the first day of my solo visit to four beautiful and very different countries in Africa. In October, First Lady Melania Trump traveled to Ghana, Malawi, Kenya, and Egypt. Her trip was framed as a partnership with USAID to learn about the U.S. role in supporting African countries. Her trip caused a stir in the United States, in part because of her outfits. She wore a pith helmet. That's a symbol of colonial rule. I'm joined by Lauren Blanchard from the Congressional Research Service and Demola Durasoma, a reporter from OKAfrica.com. Her trip got a lot of attention in the Western media and on Twitter, not as much with the African media. Uh, I think that's probably because it was one of the first trips she has taken by herself and partly because of the clothing that she wore on some of the stops. So I, I think the question for Demola and Lauren is, did this trip even matter? Did this matter uh, to Africans? Did this matter in terms of U.S. policy? What do you think, Demola? I think it didn't matter <laughs> as much as it could have, for sure. Um, I think that as an African living in America, as a Nigerian-American, I almost feel like my feelings about the trip here in America were more pronounced <laughs> than some of the people living on the continent. And I think that's because, you know, there's a certain... Rage is a strong word, but, you know, I'm just I've become disenchanted with Trump and his policies because it's something that we see on the news every day. It unfolds every day. And I think that maybe the association with that is not the same for people on the continent. So um, for me, I think it was about taking a step back and being like, you know, especially as a writer, like how much of this am I projecting onto other people's experiences and how much of it um is because of the realities that are on the continent. I think that's a really good point. I think there was a lot of distortion here on our side, on the on this side of the Atlantic, about about the trip. I I went through all of the press. I looked at not just what was on the internet, but looking at the actual physical copies of the Ghanaian and the Malawian and the Kenyan press. And to be quite honest, it didn't get much play. There was a couple of papers that had a, a front cover story, but mostly they were sidebars. Very few of them were above the fold. And I, for me, I don't know what Lauren thinks, but it was because it was a fairly standard uh, paint-by-the-numbers trip. She went to hospitals, and she went to schools, and she went to you know a wildlife park. Those are important destinations, but nothing to capture the imagination of Africans. There wasn't the trip to the tech sector. There wasn't a, an engagement on some of the 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 issues that are that are really 
critical to urban life. I would agree. I, I think it looked like a very traditional first lady trip. Um, I, I, there aren't really too many first ladies trips that stand out to me in the past either. I mean, I think maybe Michelle Obama was a bit of an exception. Um, generally, first lady trips tend to reflect uh, sort of feel-good U.S. policies and programs. This was not any different. Um, I think maybe what what's sort of an outstanding question is what impact this may have. Um, you know, we don't quite know how much input uh, the First Lady has into her husband's thinking on things. Um, she uh, came out as, as a pretty vocal proponent for U.S. aid programs uh, and seemed in lockstep in her comments before the trip and during um, with a lot of the things that U.S. Uh, US aid Administrator Mark Green has talked about. Um, so, uh, you know, nothing sort of differing from the norm. I think there are some people here in the United States who are concerned about the prospect of aid cuts. Um, the recent budgets from the president have certainly reflected a cut, and in particular to aid programs on the continent. Um, so will she now be an advocate for increasing those, those requests? It's not really quite clear yet. His Excellency Alaji Atiku Abubakar GCON is elected as a presidential candidate of the People's Democratic Party. Nigeria recently concluded its presidential primaries. The ruling All Progressives Congress, or APC, renominated President Mohamedou Buhari. The opposition, the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, nominated former Vice President Atiku Abubakar. The elections scheduled for February 2019 will not only test Nigeria's fragile democracy, it will affect how Nigeria responds to terrorism, communal unrest, and its economic woes. We're in some ways back to a situation where we were in 2014, 2015 in terms of security issues. Um, one of the things that really dogged President Jonathan at the end of his tenure was a perceived inability to deal with the Boko Haram th threat. Uh, the Boko Haram threat is, I think, now a bit on the increase again. And um, there have been a number of pretty high profile military losses uh, in Borno State in, in recent months. Uh, and this year, in a number of uh, military convoys and bases that have been successfully attacked by Boko Haram. Um, and then there is also a, a new, newer uh, sort of focus on the farmer-herder conflict and how that's uh, playing out in the Middle Belt and increasingly further south. So there are a number of voters who, who may be voting along those lines. Um, I think what's tricky is these are, these are both northern candidates. Um, both of them are uh, at least partially Fulani. Um, so uh, how the farmer-herder dynamic plays out for each of them, I think, is, is going to be sort of a question mark. They're both Muslim. Yeah, I think one of the key differences between the parties potentially is the economic policy. Uh, and while they're both Northerners, I think in the South, much of the South, at least in the Southwest, Southeast and South South, didn't vote for Buhari. But in the South in 2015, but the Southwest, which is really the commercial hub of Nigeria, my sense is they're pretty disappointed with the Buhari's econo with Buhari's economic approach. Nigeria entered recession just quickly after his presidency. That wasn't really his fault. That really had to do with the commodity uh, market and the low price of oil. But he dragged his feet to address some of the key issues related to the currency that really was a problem for many of the entrepreneurs and bankers and the thriving business sector in Africa. And the Tiku's record on 
the economy. Now, he's been dogged by corruption, but he's also had a big role when he was there in 1999 to 2007 on the uh, National Council for Privatization. So I think that the PDP is going to try to position themselves as the party of business and a party of uh, economics. I think that they will try to get involved in the uh, farmer hurdler farmer herder issues, and I think that is actually something that we really need to watch. We do not want to see that issue politicized, people using religious identity to scare up votes. That's a really bad move for Nigeria and regional stability. And on Boko Haram, uh, I think we'll continue to watch on whether they try to disrupt the election. They often talk about it, often doesn't happen, but I don't think we should rest on on past as precedent. Tamola, what are your thoughts on the election? I... (laughs) I'm trying to remain hopeful um, and optimistic. Um, I, both candidates, however, um, I'm worried that they might be the ones to uphold the status quo that exists. You know, they're older. The Nigerian youth is tired of older presidents. And they've both, it's almost as if Nigeria likes to recycle its leaders. Yes. <laughs> you know, because we've had Buhar in power before. Um, Atiku was once the vice president. So we've, I feel like if they're to remain in power, then we are in some ways upholding the status quo. And I think that um, Nigerian youth aren't excited about that at all. We don't like to be called lazy. And that's what <laughs> Buhari thinks we're lazy. So I think that there's, there's so many issues, honestly, in Nigeria in terms of insecurity, widespread economic and social issues. And there's new issues springing up. And so I think we need new refreshing leaders. Um, and But what gives me hope, though, is that we have a lot of strong opposition leaders, as you guys mentioned, from um, smaller parties. And I think that one person that expi- excites me the most is um, Obi Ezekwesili, um, who led the Bring Back Our Girls um, initiative. I think that, I mean, she's more than qualified. She's a woman. She's not as old. And, I, you know, that alone excites me. And I think that um, she would she would make a difference. She would she would um, signify change. I think that's really interesting. I think Obi, who uh, has a, a long history working at some of the international um, financial institutions here in Washington D.C., but has developed a grassroots support over Bring Back Our Girls. I think she'll be a powerful voice. And I think, well, I'm pessimistic that she will win the election. Uh, because she doesn't have much of a party structure, perhaps she can inject some real issues into the into the campaign. And Damola, I think you're right. There, these guys are largely status quo, and so. In some respects, we need to focus less on the candidates, although I do think the economic issue is one we need to think through because that has direct U.S. interests and impact. But we need to focus on the process. And in this election, there are a number of things that we have seen so far in this election cycle that have given me pause that we're in a back to the future moment, that this progress that we saw in 2015 on democracy uh, may be fragile and at risk of backsliding. And I'll just name a couple of them. They had two gubernatorial elections, uh, one in Oshun and one in Akiti, where there were significant vote buying, where the security services were used to tilt the election towards the ruling party, that in the case of Oshun, it looked like the opposition had won. They re-ran in a couple of districts, and all of a sudden, the ruling party had won. You know, these are really problematic developments that say that both parties um, 
are interested in using whatever means necessary to win and chipping away at the progress that Nigeria has made on democratization. Let me put one more thing on the table that I think is troubling and gives you a sense of what may be being cooked up. Buhari in 2015 won the election by 53% with 15 million voters. During the primaries, he claimed that he had 14 million ruling party supporters vote for him. The ruling party is laying the groundwork to say they have 14 million voters already. So if they get 18 million or 20 million in the general, that they have a plausible case. Um, I think you're going to see some work from me in the coming weeks on this election and looking at some of these tricks and some of these challenges to the democratic credentials of Nigeria that I think we need to, to work on. Lauren, other, other interact thoughts on Nigeria? Yeah, one more thought. I mean, I, I, I think there's all, often a bit of chaos in the party primaries in Nigeria. That's not a new thing. But um, the level of aisle crossing, I think, this year uh, and, and from APC to PDP um, really raises some questions about party structure and their ability to get out the vote uh, and how things are going to go. And this is going to differ from state to state. Um, there are two states in particular that are very interesting right now for the APC, um, Zamfara, where, where the uh, election commission uh, has ruled that APC is not going to be able to field uh, candidates for gubernatorial or legislative elections because it didn't get its primaries held in time. Uh, and then separately in River State, a number of sort of outstanding questions and competing party primaries, indirect and direct. Um, it, it suggests that the APC uh, was sort of behind the eight ball in terms of its organization for the primaries. And it's I, I'm not quite sure how that's going to uh, impact their their national level sort of votes and their ability to get things out. And, and you know, there will be the, the party brokers, uh, the gubernatorial candidates, the Senate candidates, and their respective levels of popularity in each state that will, I think, play a lot into how many votes uh, each candidate, each presidential candidate gets. Okay, so we're going to keep our eyes on Nigeria, and you're going to hear more conversation about this election as we get closer to it. Sub-Saharan Africa has a long history of musicians playing a prominent role in politics. Uh, whether we're talking about Huma Sakela and Miriam Makeba in the anti-apartheid struggle, or Fela Kuti in Nigeria uh, fighting against military rule. Um, but I think we're in a new moment. We have seen in the last couple of years uh, musicians playing, taking center stage in these contests. And no one personifies this more than our guest today, the Honorable Robert Chagulani, who is more known, more widely known as pop star, Afrobeat star, uh, Bobby Wine. Uh, so thank you, sir, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Bobby, we would love to hear the story of why you decided to go from being the big pop star in Uganda to going into politics, the rough and tumble world of politics. <laughs> well, it's not a very good story. Every time I tell the story, I feel like I'm stripping myself of the superstar status. Mm. But anyway, I was never a politician. I grew up hating politics because uh, of the story my mama always told me. 
that it was politics that um, made my family so poor. My father used to be rich, but when he joined the liberation or what they call the liberation struggle uh, of Museveni, that struggle that ousted Milton, Milton Obote and brought President Museveni in power, um, the Obote government bombed my grandfather's house and took all my family leaders in jail. And that's how we ended up losing everything. So my mama always told us to keep out of politics and encouraged us to work so hard. And indeed, I listened to her, worked so hard and everything. But that doesn't mean that I always saw the injustices. I mean that I always didn't see the injustices. I saw the injustices. They were, you know, glaring. And every now and then I could, you know, politely talk about them. But it was not until it personally happened to me, I was beaten by a military operative just because I was driving a very expensive car. And I was beaten in front of everybody outside a nightclub. And my only crime was to show off. And um, this guy asked me never to show off in front of the owners of the country. I didn't understand it well, but later on I understood that the owners of the country were the guys that owned the guns because it was becoming more clear to me that the gun is the master and the citizen is a slave. That was about 10 or 11 years ago and that's what actually changed my music from just entertainment to what I decided to call edutainment. That's edutain educating people through entertainment. And um, my music was more focused on liberation, was more focused on not just political struggles, but uh, the fight against poverty, HIV, AIDS. But the more I grew, is the more I saw the need to talk about the glaring injustices from the government and the government institutions. And it was only until uh, last year that I saw the need for me to lead by example because there were so many young people in Uganda and uh, there was a very big disconnection between young people and the way they are governed. Many young people didn't care uh, how they are governed and I thought that because we are the majority being over 85% of, uh, of the population, I thought that um, by running for an office, I would encourage other young people to run for office and thereby we would determine the kind of country that we want to live in. And that's how I ended up in parliament and ultimately here. Well, I think that there is something about your message that uh, in your lyrics and in your public speeches that are uh, appealing to the youth of Uganda. Um, and I was hoping that Damola and Lauren, if you could comment a little bit about why do you think that Bobby Wines and I would say more broadly musicians are able to convey these powerful messages about politics and injustice in a way that um, the, the political class isn't and isn't connecting. I think that when it comes to Bobby Wine especially, I feel that people view you, and rightfully so, as a voice for the voiceless. And there's this feeling throughout Africa, I'm Nigerian, so I have the feeling as well that the youth are going to be the ones to bring about change and to bring about justice. And I think that Bobby sort of embodies that fully for us young Africans. And like you said, the majority of the Ugandan population is under the age of 35. So we're just all tired of seeing like stubborn 70 year old grandpas retain power and continue to act in their own self-interest and um, 
we just want to change. We want a radical shift and a radical movement. And I feel like Bobby Wine is sort of at the forefront of that as a musician. Um, and I know that for me as a Nigerian as well, when I hear stories about Fela Kuti and, you know, all of his activism, it evokes pride in like being a Nigerian. And I think that Bobby Wine does the same thing for young Ugandans. And I think that that's why music is so powerful in that regard. Just to add on to that, I think we talk here in Washington about this youth bulge in Africa and, and, um, Uganda is, is just sort of at the center of that. You've got 70% of the population that is under the age of 25. Uh, and, and a lot of them have known no other president than President Museveni who came to power in 86. Um, and, and Uganda is not alone in this, but a lot of young people in Africa are getting disenchanted with politics. They don't see change. They don't see elections is bringing change. Um, and so I think music and musicians are able to sort of touch something uh, and galvanize it. And and you, Bobby, have, have been um, engaged on a number of topics that they, they care about. In Uganda, there's this new social media tax. And, and you know, when you don't make a lot of money, uh, when you make no money, when you don't have a job, um, that's that's lost to you. Uh, there's a tax on mobile money transfers. And and mobile banking is is huge and critical to, to a lot of people in Uganda. Um, and you've touched on that. And um, when you have a government, and, and Uganda is, is one of these that is um, turning on and off internet and social media access at certain times um, during the 2016 election, they shut down access to internet and social media. And you were one of the few people who was sort of able to sort of put messages out. Um, and I think that resonates. A lot of young people are getting their news now, uh, not from uh, the same sources that their parents and their grandparents got their news. They're getting it from social media and they're sharing information that way. And they're they're hearing uh, your message, not just through speeches and they're hearing it through Twitter and WhatsApp uh, and your songs. Bobby, I asked you to join us today because I think your personal story exemplifies what we're seeing in lots of different places on the continent. And I think some of our audience probably doesn't know the story of a group named Yanni Mar that in 2012 spoke up against uh, the attempts for a third term by Abdullah Wad and was able to defeat that bid, or groups in Burkina Faso that led the charge against President Kapore, who was in power in 1987, and so has also been in power as long as Museveni. And then on the other side, there's a number of musicians who are, are, are doing the same things that you are, and that are also, as you have been, under tremendous amount of repression, whether we're talking about rappers in Angola or musicians in Congo. Uh, so uh, I wonder... Are musicians coming to you in from in, either inside Uganda or across the continent and saying, "How do we, uh, how do we influence politics in the way that you have, and the way that you have shined a light on the abuses in uh, in Uganda and you know captivated captivated Ugandans?" You're you're too modest to say that every time that Bobby Wine has gone out to campaign for an independent opposition candidate, they've all won. Politicians here in America would love to have that kind of track record. So you have a real uh, bandwagon effect. <laughs> well, um, I must say that um, initially, I and uh, a few other friends of mine were raising our voices, not as a political tool, mm. but as a transformational tool. Mm. And indeed, uh, we've encouraged many of our contemporaries to touch on the subjects that uh, create 
a different subjects like poverty, subjects like um, um, the fight against HIV AIDS and behavioral change. Many of the things that we've been doing have not been associated with government whatsoever. No, it has been creating change, you know, within the people trying to see what we can do as artists. It was um, until we noticed that um, for us to make a formidable change, it's got to be engineered from the leadership. But again, we know that we, uh, particularly in Uganda, we're dealing with a, um, a government that will permit anything apart from something that opens the eyes of the people to repression. And indeed, um, ever since I started singing songs that uh, awakened the Ugandan people about uh, the excesses of government, my music has constantly been banned. Uh, the most recent is a song called Freedom. It was banned and uh, there was a special announcement from the government that a song called Freedom is not allowed to be played on air. That was such a, a, a contradiction, but it happened. You can download Freedom on American platforms. It is an inspiring song. Wow. <laughs> I'm not, I don't get any money from that, but I want I want to make sure our audience knows that they can hear some of your music. We it's agree. easy to access. Well, and it's an unfortunately prescient song. Your video, I mean, watch it. Watch the video. Wow. You you sing part of the song from behind bars. Mm. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, you you didn't know this was coming, and you've just spent time behind bars and, and you're here, yeah. you're on bail right now um, yeah. and going back maybe next week to face treason charges and, and yeah. possibly worse. I mean, the, the president of Uganda, the minister of security, they have referred to you and people that are part of this people power movement as if it's a terrorist group. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's a worrying twist to this story. Yeah, it's yeah. a worrying twist. Um, but like I said um, before, um, this is more of something that we expected. Of course, we did not expect the government to degenerate to the levels it has reached. But I mean, um, for very many years, anybody that ever tried to raise their voices against injustice has been met with brutal uh, violence. For the young people, there are two options. Um, the government either throws money at you or bullets at you, one of the two. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough um, decision. But however, um, I and my friends have a resolve that if it needs to go through all the challenges, we'll have to go through them to have a Uganda that we're going to be proud of. I think that's really inspiring. Damola, I, I, I want to bring you back into the conversation. What is your reaction to some of the, the things we're talking about? Well, I mean, I think the message is so important. Like freedom is just, I think, outright bold and brave. I know you have one line in in the song where you say that the oppression you're facing in Uganda is worse than apartheid. 
um, in South Africa. And I, you know, of course, that makes me think of Nelson Mandela, who also spent substantial time in prison. And I wonder if you see any of those similarities between your story and Mandela's. And do you ever look to figures like that, revolutionary figures, for inspiration that like, yes, it's possible to get through these things and affect change? Well, Nelson Mandela is absolutely a giant of history and uh, he's one of the great people that we look up to well knowing that if Nelson Mandela managed to overcome that, if Fela Kuti managed to raise his voice and face uh, a military regime um, but his messages are still alive even if he died, um, we continue to believe that what has been achieved before can be achieved today. One of the things that has, I think, helped raise your profile and the struggle and plight of Ugandans is the rallying of the international uh, music scene. So there was a letter uh, where Chris Martin of Coldplay signed it, Brian Eno, uh, Peter Gabriel, that really tried to first to call attention to the abuse that you have uh, you have had to suffer under the regime, but then also to galvanize world attention. And it brings a question that I think Washington audiences and people who focus on African policy think a lot is, what is the role of the international community uh, to fight against injustice, to protect political space, um, and what are the downsides to it? So maybe your, your thoughts on how the international spotlight has helped uh, people power in your message. I'll be honest, if it was not for the international pressure, I probably would either be dead or still in detention. The government in Uganda has mastered the art of ignoring the cries of Ugandans because many times the cries of Ugandans have not uh, been able to go beyond Uganda. I, When I was incarcerated, and held incommunicado, I was not able to understand the magnitude of support and, uh, and, and pressure that was exerted. And up to now, I'm still reading back through the tweets and uh, posts and uh, trying to, you know, update myself on the momentous work that was done when I was out of uh, jail, I would like humbly to use this opportunity to extend my thanks to the friends in Nigeria, that guy called Ricky, the team I just met, uh, friends of Fela Kuti, uh, the friends in Nairobi, Kenya, the friends in Rwanda, in Nigeria, in Zimbabwe, in England, in America, across the world. They literally saved my life. I don't know if they ever know it. But at the same time, I also want uh, the world to know that what happened to me was terrible. But in my opinion, it is nothing compared to what has happened to people in Uganda. When I was arrested, it was 33 of us. And so many people were terribly, terribly beaten. Unfortunately, many will never be known and uh it is uh actually i was writing a song last night mm. trying to highlight their plight and bring um you know attention to it and indeed i i'm going to be doing more music the coming days than i've been doing because i believe that music is a universal language and uh, through music i can push this agenda even further but back home they've they've banned your concerts 
And most recently, I think while you were were here recovering, uh, the government uh, talked about threatened to cancel um, uh, international music festival. It had two hundred artists coming from all over the continent, uh, and at the very last minute, uh, the minister of ethics uh, declared that there was going to be you know a wild party, open sex, devil worship. Uh, I think um, probably some other people stepped in and realized that there was a big tourism opportunity. In this in this concert, and they they let it go on. Um, but uh, you've you've had friends, colleagues who are DJs back home arrested. Um, this is an ongoing thing where where people that are are, are spreading your your music, uh, friends of yours are are being arrested. Some are still in jail. Bob, if I can put words in your mouth, I think you're telling us that this is not just about you. This is about uh, the the broader people of Uganda and your friends and people who are worth the movement. And I wonder for our audience, maybe Damola and has some thoughts and Lauren has some thoughts on what is the right way to make sure that, you know, that when Bobby returns to Uganda, that one, he is safe and the two, the spotlight doesn't leave when he leaves the United States. How do we keep the attention on this very important issue? I think, you know, that's where international support can really matter. Because I worry a lot of the times about, you know, international support maybe overshadowing the voices of people that they're trying to help. Um, and I think that if people um, internationally can work to elevate people's voices rather than being a spokesperson for them, that that can really help to maintain international attention on these types of issues without being overbearing and while still allowing people who are working on the ground to maintain their agency and not playing into this narrative that like Africa and Africans are people that need saving. But I think that um, people who pay attention to international politics, um, we will benefit from really continuing to keep our eyes on this story. And I think that the voices of people with platforms, even outside of Uganda, supporting that mission would be really effective effective in in maintaining the attention that we need to make sure that like Bobby is safe even when he returns home. And that's a really important point. Our audiences may not know that the song that is being played in the streets of Nairobi and in the broader region are Bobby songs. I mean, I think that there has been a regional uh, rallying around your story. Lauren, and then I'll, I'll have Bobby have the last word. But, you know, what do we do going forward? Yeah, and, and and there is a challenge getting news sometimes out of Uganda. Um, you know, there are still really bold and brave journalists who are reporting on not just your story, but the story of of a lot of Ugandans who are who are going through um, similar experiences. But uh, during the protests after your arrests, there were a number of journalists who were beaten up, uh, arrested. Uh, some have have claimed that they've also been tortured. Uh, the Foreign Correspondents Association of East Africa. Africa has listed a number of uh, international correspondents who are not able to get visas to get into Uganda right now. So I think the environment seems to be tightening for reporting. Now, of course, there's a lot of ways for Ugandans to still uh, get get stories out. Um, but as you go back, uh, I think it's very important that everybody is paying attention to this. There is a real danger. There is, um, I, I think there are a lot of people who are worried about your life. Um, there are people who are worried you're going to be arrested, obviously, you still have a court a court case to go through um but uh, there there are fears about the stability of the country and um and your health i think is now tied to that uh and that's a worrying dimension of this yeah um 
anything can be expected of the regime back home. Anything, you know. So um, one would be right to fear for one's life. Um, however, we are fighting for freedom, you know. I'm going back home to face whatever. Because, I mean, I had just gone for a campaign when I got arrested, tortured, and every, anything. So I had to expose that. And now I'm going back home, and I'm ready to face whatever, because that's my home. Um, we cannot continue living in fear. Um, Fela Kuti lived in Nigeria even when there was that brutal hostility from the state. So if Fela lived... I can live. It's a powerful message. Bobby, thank you so much for not only for fighting for Ugandan freedom and Ugandan freedom of expression and democracy, but for joining us today. We will be watching you and doing our best to keep your story uh, in the Washington and the international spotlight. Since we recorded our podcast, Bobby returned to Uganda. He was immediately escorted off the plane under armed guards. He's been on a short leash, but that hasn't stopped him from spreading his message. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.